0: Hello, and welcome to another edition of Prophecy Update. Our host of Prophecy Update is Bill Solace. Bill is the author of the best selling book Israelistine The Ancient Blueprints of the Future Middle East. Bill's guest today is Dr. David Reagan, founder of Lamb Lion Ministries. Today begins a two part discussion on something many Americans and Christians don't know much about that's the European Union. What is it? When did it happen and how does it affect you and I as Christian Americans? Let's join our host Bill Solace and Dr. David Reagan as they begin.
1: Welcome to another edition of the Prophecy Update radio program whereby we attempt to authenticate the sovereignty of God through Bible prophecy by informing you what? Bible prophecy has to say about these last days. I'm your host, Bill Solis, and I'm delighted to have Dr. David Reagan as my guest today. David, welcome to the program. Well, thank you, Bill. It's always good to
2: be on here with you.
1: Now, David has been on the program several times in the past, and those shows can be accessed in the archives at www.kwbb.org. In our past programs, David and I discussed America in prophecy and the Middle East in prophecy, However, today we are going to cover the European Union, i.e. the revived Roman Empire in Bible prophecy. Dr. Reagan has his doctorate degree in international politics. Is that correct, David? That's right. And is considered one of the premier End Times experts on the topic of the EU in Bible prophecy. Now, European events over the past decade have inspired... Dr. Reagan and several other eschatologists to discern the prophetic relevance of prophecies in the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation that are regarded with the role of the revived Roman Empire in the end times. Now David has discovered some striking similarities between the ancient prophecies and many of the current events taking place in the EU today. Now David's prophecy suggests that the Roman Empire will not only survive but will actually revive and rise to a superpower status once again. Now are we seeing the beginning stages of this taking place in the 2009 Ratified Treaty of Lisbon and the institutional developments taking place with the, in the European Union today?
2: Well, I think we uh, are more than uh, beyond the beginning stages. <laughs> I think we're getting into the uh, latter stages of the revival of this. The uh, all began back in 1950 uh, when a French... Uh, businessman by the name of Jean Monnet had the vision of uh, of a uh, transnational organization in Europe, because uh, Europe was totally devastated by World War II, and he decided that the only hope for raising uh, Europe out of the ashes was for transnational cooperation, which had never been successful in Europe, because the British had always hated the French, and the French had hated the Germans, and he said, we've got to put all these hatreds and pettiness aside, and we've got to... Uh, Cooperate for our national survival. And uh, the foreign minister of France at that time, Robert Schumann, uh, said, I think you got the right idea. And the two of them uh, began to push that. And the result of it was that in uh, 1951, they formed the European Coal and Steel Community, which consisted of only six nations. And uh, that began to develop and ultimately developed into not only a common market but included also political cooperation, until finally in 1992 it resulted in what we call today the European Union. So uh, this has been going on for now for over 50 years. And um, what has happened, uh, Bill, is, is amazing, because uh, nobody ever gave up on the idea of the Roman Empire for uh, over a 1,000 years after it ceased to exist. People kept trying to recreate it. They always did so with military force. So you had people like uh, uh, Napoleon and Hitler uh, trying to reconstruct the Roman Empire, but they never succeeded because it wasn't God's timing. But when it came God's timing, it was done in a very short period of time peacefully and has resulted in this new superpower called the European Union.
1: Well, now this Treaty of Lisbon that, you know, I've heard you speak on this, and coincidentally that was... Apparently ratified in December of 2009, right after Obama was elected, and just prior to the Operation Cast Lead going on in the Middle East between Israel and Hamas, and that came into being. And what was some of the uh,
2: the purposes of that treaty? How did that really strengthen the EU? Well, the European Union is a very loose confederation of states, and it still is, in fulfillment of Bible prophecy because in the book of Daniel we're told that the last great world uh, uh, Gentile empire will be one of iron mixed with clay, which is an indication that it will be a loose confederation and not a strong central union, and that will be unstable. And uh, that is exactly what we have as a loose confederation, but what happened was that back in uh, at the beginning of the century, of this century, they decided that they needed a stronger political union. They had a very strong economic union, but they decided they needed a stronger political union. And so, they uh, what they did in 2004 was to draft a constitution, and they put that constitution out so that by that time they had 27 members of the European Union, and the idea was to pull them together into a tighter political union. Uh, but that failed because um, that was submitted to all the nations for a vote, and two of the nations, Fran- France and uh, the Netherlands, voted down in 2005. But they were determined to have their way, uh, very much like the Obama administration determined to have its way regardless of what public opinion says. And so uh, this is what they did. They went back to the treaty of and, and, and uh, negotiated a treaty, which you mentioned, the Treaty of Lesbos that was in 2007. That treaty is nothing in the world but the Constitution that was voted down in 2005, put in treaty form. The reason they put it in treaty form is because when you put it in treaty form, then you do not have to have national votes on it. All you have to have is the parliaments of each country voting on it. So basically what they decided to do was to have their own way by going around public opinion. And so they submitted this only to the parliaments and the parliaments uh, uh, approved it. And as you say, it went into effect in November of 2009, so it has been in effect less than a year now, and it had a major impact. Uh, first of all, it provided the organization with a uh, what, what's called a legal personality. Uh, it's now uh, an organization that you can make treaties with, an organization you can make contracts with, whereas before you had to deal with the independent nations. Uh, then it has made it much more efficient in its decision-making because prior to this uh, change, uh, the organization could only make unanimous decisions. Therefore, it made very few decisions. Now uh, it does it by what are called uh, qualified majorities. In other words, uh, they're not exactly majorities. They may, on some issues, be a 55% majority. Another issue a is 65% majority. Another one has to be a 70% majority. But it is much easier now to make decisions than before. Another thing it did is to uh, make it possible for the public, for the first time ever, to uh, initiate proposals. You live in the state of California, so you know much about that. California is one of the uh, states that has, I guess, more public referendums than the other state in the union, which are uh, put on the ballot by a certain number of signatures. Well, now, with a million signatures, you can... uh, Uh, bring up a a proposal, an initiative for the entire union to vote on. Another thing they did was to incorporate the European Charter of Rights, which had never been officially uh, approved, and now it is a part of the European Union Constitution. And then finally, what I consider to be really the most important thing that happened as a result of all this is that they created two new positions. One is a minister of foreign affairs. They've never had that before, so now they'll have one spokesperson speaking for the entire European Union instead of uh, 27 different foreign ministers speaking. And the other was the creation of a president of the union. They've never really had that before. The union has always been run by a committee made up of the foreign ministers of uh, of the member nations. Now it's going to have a president, which that committee selects, and that president will be the one who will call the shots and be the spokesman to the world, and so it's going to have sort of a head of state, which it has never had before. And The reason I consider that so significant, Bill, is because I believe this is most likely the position that the Antichrist will hold when he begins to rise to power in uh, Europe. Well, and I want to spend some time on that later
1: on in this conversation because that's where this is all going. Out from the Roman Empire of course comes this crazed individual, but what's right. got my attention here is that essentially they've put together in those two offices two nobodies. Uh, Herman <laughs> well, yeah, Rampy you know uh, uh, uh,
2: Tony Blair, the former prime minister of uh, England was uh, negotiating like mad behind the scenes to try to become uh, this first president of the European Union incredibly even uh, there were people proposing uh, Bill Clinton for it. Uh, and Clinton was just playing coy on that. I think he knew he had no chance since he was not a European. But uh, Tony Blair went all out after it. And uh, to everybody's astonishment, uh, the council selected, as you put it, two nobodies to hold these particular positions. Probably because the council feared that if they appointed a high profile individual like uh, Tony Blair, he would use that as an opportunity to quickly build that particular position into one of great power and influence, and then, therefore, the council of ministers would no longer play as important a role. So they selected a woman named Baroness Catherine Ashton of Great Britain to be their foreign affairs minister, and she's nothing in the world but a Labour Party political hack. And then they selected, of all things, the Belgium prime minister, Hermann von Rompuy, uh, to be the president, and uh, he is uh, literally a nobody uh, he, he is a guy that uh, works behind the scenes he uh, He looks like mr. Milk toast. Uh, his own sister drew a uh, is a professional political cartoonist, and after he was selected, she drew a picture of him as a circus clown because she said that 's what most people consider him to be, so he is uh, uh, he is the new president, and he will be in that office, I think, for two and a half years before they either reelect him or select somebody else. Uh, but in the meantime, they say he's a very effective bureaucrat behind the scene. He may not have very much public persona, but that he's very, very effective working behind the scenes. And um, so that's, what, that's where they are now. But I can tell you one thing for sure. He may be a, a laughingstock. But the European Union itself is no laughing matter. This is a very, very serious new world superpower that is absolutely determined to overshadow the United States.
1: Well, and we were, many of us were astonished when Juan Rompuy was put into office so promptly and nobody, and then we started thinking, well, if he can be put into office and nobody so promptly, how quickly can a Antichrist come into power? Absolutely,
2: right on target. And then also,
1: when you talk about the comparisons, now they've got a president, a constitution, you are comparing a superpower to another superpower with right. America. Let's talk about that. What are some of the comparisons
2: between the developing EU and the United States? Well, they come as quite a shock uh, to many people, uh, particularly those who don't know anything about the European Union. They just don't realize how big it is. As I said, it has 27 member states, but those 27 member states constitute 500 million people. The uh, current population of the United States is about 300 million. So this new superpower has got us outstripped by 200 million people. Mm. Uh, it also um, is, uh, has us outstripped in gross national product by about a trillion dollars a year. Uh, it has us outstripped in both exports and imports. Their share of the world, world trade is about 18 percent. Ours is about 16 percent. So we're talking about a very major economic superpower here. And they've developed all the institutions that are required for a superpower except one, and that is a European army. Now, before, I'd have to say two, because they did not have a head of state. They did not have a common spokesman. They have remedied that now. Mm -hmm. So they have, for example, uh, a headquarters uh, where the council meets in in Brussels, Belgium. Uh, uh, They have their their bureaucracy in Brussels, Brussels, Belgium, it's referred to as the European Commission. They have a parliament of over 700 members located in Strasbourg, France. Uh, they have a central bank in Frankfurt, Germany. And as you know, nearly all, not all, but nearly all of the members of the European Union have given up their national currencies, surrendered them, and uh, are using the euro. And that, again, is an indication of how. Uh, strong. This thing is is becoming it that it could convince nations to give up their their money, like the the Deutschmark in in uh, Germany and the uh, uh, the Frank in uh, in uh, 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 France and the, the Lira in uh, Italy, and and use the euro. I think there's only two holdouts right now. One of them is Great Britain. I don't remember the other one that are holding out on the euro, but they're all going to have to give in to it sooner or later. Uh, The most amazing uh, institution in the whole thing right now to me is the European uh, Court, which is located in Luxembourg. Uh, The reason it's so amazing to me is because all the member states have surrendered to that court the ultimate uh, judicial power of their nation. Uh, By that I mean, uh, for example, the highest court in England is the House of Lords, and if you now take a case to the House of Lords and you lose... You can now appeal that to the European Court in Luxembourg, and they can make a ruling that overrules the House of Lords. It would be like us saying, okay, uh, if you lose in the Supreme Court of the United States, you can now appeal to the European Court, and it could overrule our Supreme Court. So this is a real surrender of sovereignty on the part of the nations that have joined this union. Right now, the major thing they lack that a superpower always has is a strong military. They do not, they have their individual military units, the French military, the German military, but as far as the European Union itself, all they have is a 60,000 uh, uh, troops that they call a, a rapid deployment unit that can be called up at any time. They only have about 1,000 that are full-time. But 60,000 they can call up at any moment. But there are strong voices in the European Union saying we need to have our own military uh, force, our own transnational military force. And basically what they want to do is they want to replace a transnational military force in Europe. They want to replace NATO with that because NATO is still a symbol of the United States meddling in European affairs, and ultimately they want to get us out of their affairs, and they want to run their own military.
1: Yeah, now that's amazing. And so now what you're talking about with all this stage setting and these institutions in place is nothing short of another prophetic miracle, much like the inclination of Israel to come back into
2: the land, the Zionistic. Well, it really is, uh, Bill, because... um, uh, you know, it was, it's 2,500 years ago that Daniel wrote Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 7, in which he clearly, precisely uh, prophesied that there was going to be a certain succession of world empires, uh, that the Babylonian would be followed by the Medo-Persian, and the Medo-Persian by the Greek, and the Greek by the Roman And then in the end times, there would be a revival of the Roman Empire and be the last Gentile Empire of the world. And all that was written 2,500 years ago. And as I say, this prophecy is very, very precise. I would urge any of your listeners who are not familiar with it to go to Daniel chapter 2 and read it. Uh, It's not like these crazy prophecies of Nostradamus that are so vague and general and written in such googly that you have no idea what they're saying and uh, people then run to those and say that they were prophecies after the event, this is clearly stated that this is going to happen in the future. As one wag put it, Daniel wrote history in advance better than any historian has ever written it after the fact. And so we have a very clear succession outlined here. And for over 500 years, uh, Bible prophecy scholars have said in the end times there's going to be revival, Of the old Roman Empire. I say 500 years because it wasn't until about 500 years ago when we were able to get the Bible in the hands of the people that uh, the Puritans, for example, began to interpret Bible prophecy literally and began to say, yeah, Israel is going to be reborn in the end times, and the Roman Empire is going to come back into existence. Prior to that time, the church had spiritualized uh, Bible prophecy ever since about 400 A.D., But about 500 years ago, uh, the Lord began to raise up uh, uh, prophetic scholars who interpreted the Bible to mean what it says and Bible prophecy to mean what it says and put the Bible in their hands in their own languages. And so for over 500 years, we've had these prophecies, and the world has laughed at them. They've said, oh, Israel will never come back to existence. That's ridiculous. They're scattered all over the world. Well, God said he was going to do it, and he did it. And people have laughed at the idea of the revival of the Roman Empire, but it has been revived, and it is continuing to grow.
1: Well, and I wish we had the time to actually go through those prophecies and turn this into a Bible study, but there's a lot of other things I want to cover in this interview. But for the listeners, like David said, Daniel 2, Daniel 7, and you find connecting prophecies in Revelation 13 and Revelation 17, where you can pick up on this stuff that David's talking about. Now, the, one of the important prophecies, you alluded to an Antichrist earlier, in Daniel 9, 26, it talks about the origin of the Antichrist. It's, it talks about this Antichrist coming out of the people who destroyed the city and the sanctuary. Of course, we know that was, uh, the sanctuary was the temple, the Jewish temple, the second one, and the city, of course, was Jerusalem. Now, there is a kind of a paradigm shift as to the origin of the Antichrist, of him being an Assyrian and possibly a Muslim. And I, and I know you feel this way, feel that this is sort of taking away from the importance of the revival of the Roman Empire as people start starting to now shift their focus on this this possible difference of where the Antichrist may, may come from. Do you want to talk about that? Well,
2: I, I yes, I would like to talk about that. I think it's a classic, and I mean classic, example of people reading Bible prophecy into the news instead of the other way around. Uh, the uh, What's happening here is that uh, uh, because of the uh, sudden uh, revival of uh, Islam here in the end times, it's been a sleeping giant for hundreds of years, and suddenly it's come alive through the power of its uh, money from oil, uh, we are finding now people saying, well, we need to reconsider all these scriptures. Uh, Maybe what uh, we're really talking about here is not the Roman Empire and the revival of it. Probably what we're talking about is the revival of the Ottoman Empire, the former empire of Islam. And out of that will come the Antichrist. And um, so we have a group of people today who are making that argument. And I just think the argument is basically is very off base and very bizarre. Um, they take, for example, Daniel 9:26 uh, that you referred to just a moment ago. But Daniel 9:26 and 27 says point blank uh, that um, the Antichrist will rise from the people who destroy the temple. Well, the temple was destroyed in 70 A.D. by the Romans. Well, those who have this viewpoint today now of the Antichrist coming out of the Muslim world. <laughs> Uh, they say, well, now wait a minute. Uh, if you take a look at those troops that destroyed the city of Jerusalem in 70 AD, you will find that most of them were uh, people that the Romans took right out of the Middle East and incorporated into their armies. And so it was really uh, Middle Easterners who uh, destroyed uh, Rome in 70 AD, mainly uh, uh, people of uh, Arab of course, at that time, the Muslim religion didn't even exist. But they would say, well, these were Arabs who later became Muslims. But they were Arab peoples. And so, therefore, the people who are going to, to uh, produce the Antichrist in the end time is not going to be uh, the people from uh, Roman Empire, but it's going to be people from the Middle East. It's going to be the Arab peoples. And most likely, he will come uh, from Assyria. And they use Assyria primarily because... Uh, there are passages in the Bible where prophets uh, use uh, the Assyrian as a symbolic type of the Antichrist. But then, you know, they also use Pharaoh as a symbolic type of the Antichrist, and Saul can be considered a symbolic type, and uh, so could uh, David's son Absalom, and so could many others. But as you well know, Bill, the classic example of the prototype of the Antichrist, the, the, the most important one in all the scriptures is a tyrant by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes, uh, who controlled part of Alexander's empire after he died, and this man was of Greek descent. He was not of Assyrian descent or Arab descent. Furthermore, most important of all, concerning Daniel 9:26 and 27, it is irrelevant that there were Middle Eastern people in the uh, Roman army. The Roman army never used mercenaries. They only used their own citizens. The only people who were members of their army when they went into Jerusalem in 70 AD were Roman citizens. Now, some of them may have been from the Middle East, but they were Roman citizens. And so I don't think there is any way to get around the fact that it was Rome that destroyed Jerusalem in 70 AD. It was the Roman Senate that sent the troops there. They were controlled by Roman generals. All of the members of the army were Roman citizens. I just don't think you can get around the fact that this was destroyed by Rome.
1: Right, and I know the arguments. They're revisionist history. They think that Roman uh, Legion 10 pretentious was predominantly Middle Eastern, so therefore that's really who controlled the shots, and I agree with you 100%. Rome was stationed in Rome, and the Roman Empire came out of its capital, and they made those decisions. The other problem with this Ottoman Empire theory is in Daniel 2, of course, the fourth image is the legs of iron. So we're showing two legs, talking about a split of the Roman Empire, which we know historically occurred. And I don't see how the Ottoman Empire comes out of that split between the east and
2: the split of Yes, you're right, Bill. Those two legs are symbolic of the split of the Roman Empire, And there's nothing in the Ottoman history that relates to that. Furthermore, to try to argue that that fourth empire is the Ottoman Empire breaks the whole succession. Again, the succession was uh, to start with Babylon.
0: That's all the time we have for this edition of Prophecy Update. Join us next week as we continue with our host, Bill Salas, and his guest, Dr. David Reagan, with part two discussing The Biblical Implications of the European Union You know, time is short Jesus is to return at any moment You know, in Romans chapter 10 it says But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart That is the word of faith which we proclaim Because if you confess the Lord Jesus with your mouth And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead You will be saved For with the heart, one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth, one confesses unto salvation. For the scripture says, Everyone believing on him will not be put to shame. This is your invitation to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You can simply do that by repenting and asking Jesus into your heart by a simple prayer. Such as, Lord Jesus, I know that you died for my sins at Calvary. I give my life to you. Lord, I confess my sin to you, and I ask your Holy Spirit to fill me. Lord, I pray that you forgive me. Lord, I ask this in Jesus' name. If you've prayed that prayer and have meant that with all your heart, you are now a member of the family of God, your salvation is sure. If you have questions or need a Bible, let us know. We'll be happy to send them to you. You can simply go to www.kwbb.org or www.prophecydepot.com Or if you want more information on Dr. David Reagan, you can go to www. Lam Lion, that's Lam Lion, one word, dot com. Until next time, keep looking up for your redemption draws nigh.